and your Amsasia podcast. Yo, pick your red up because things ain't that bad. Maybe you should switch the target that you're aiming at. Believe perfection is a beast that they'll never catch. So never waste another day because life moves so fast. And a dream without pursuing, though they never last. Another shadow of regret I try to never cast. And always tell a truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Welcome to the second episode of the Endurance Asia podcast. This week we've got Grant Rawlinson, or Axe as he's more affectionately known. Grant is, a, is an explorer. He, he's a human-powered adventurer and really one of the most impressive people I've had the chance of uh, speaking, speaking with. He is on a journey on a quest at the moment um, with, with a, uh, a concept he's come up with called home to home he's a resident of Singapore even though he's a he's a native Kiwi and he has uh, he is traveling by human power from Singapore all to the way to New Zealand and he's mainly by rowing rowing from Singapore all the way to Australia and cycling around Australia before taking on the, the ditch, the, the Tasman, one of the most treacherous stretches of water in the world. And uh, Axe gets deep into the, the, um, the home-to-home challenge that he's working on. Also talks a lot about Everest and actually retreating from the death zone from 8,000 meters and his, uh, his story, of, story of suffering and survival there. And uh, we really get into how he balances this exploration mindset uh, with his young family, his lovely wife Stephanie, and and two young twin daughters, uh, and how really he he balances it, and brings it all together. And uh, uh, I've never met a Kiwi that that I didn't like. Uh, there, I, I love love all Kiwis, and uh, and Axe is a is a true Kiwi. So. Um, Really happy uh, to be able to share this story, and uh, here is Grant Axe Rawlinson. Cool, Grant. Welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. I'm uh, I'm chuffed to have you uh, have you come and join us. Thanks, thanks. So it's uh, very nice to be here. Yeah, um, I wanted to kick off actually, just uh, just with a bit of a story about how we came to meet. Um, it's actually just over a year ago, almost to the day. And uh, and I'd heard about your home to home challenge, which we'll we'll get deep into um, over the next next hour or so. Um, but I was trying to plan a challenge of myself um, of my own, and I wanted to kayak uh, the circumference of Singapore. And I, I, you obviously remember reaching out to you on a on Messenger, and you kindly offered to um to to have a call with me. And uh, and yeah, I was uh, looking to do a charity event, kayak around Singapore, and you told me um, pretty much straight away it can't be done. And uh, and it was uh, it was pretty solid advice. But what we ended up on that call getting through was that uh, you could actually potentially kayak halfway around Singapore. And uh, the reasons it couldn't be done is because there's a bridge that cuts it off, and then there's lots of no-go zones area, being the biggest transshipment port in the world. But um, but yeah, it was interesting that on that call you were like, well. From your experiences of uh, of challenges, you're like you could cycle the the second half of it around uh, around Singapore, and I was like, yeah, but that's not uh, it's not really going to be hard enough. And I was like, oh, and then I I thought then about cycling the full circumference of Singapore and then doing a marathon over the uh, 
through the middle of Singapore over the over the summits and uh, and you said well yeah that would definitely be harder <laughs> and uh, um, and like I just want to say like to kick off to say like thank you so much like not only did you help me like from that point you also like helped me with the planning the uh, with the tides with lending me your kayak like and uh, and like we raised like thirty thousand Singapore dollars and and really it just wouldn't have happened without you uh, and so I wanted to like firstly kick off with a with a like thank you for giving your time graciously and um and really sort of helping bring that uh, challenge to life and helping me ideate and execute on it. So, so No yeah, problem. It was yeah. definitely uh, one of the crazier things that I've been involved with, that's for sure. Oh, mate, that's like, <laughs> it's nowhere near crazy when it comes into your realm. Um, so, uh, I so, could, yeah, just we, couldn't work out why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so with that, I mean, I uh, want to, like, really dig deep on where, like, how... Grant Axe Rawlinson came to be sitting here today. Mm. What like what what really sort of burns that fire in you mm-hmm. when it comes to adventure and uh, and obviously keen to dig into the the home to home challenge as well. But yeah, just sure. like kicking off and like, like keen to find where it all came from. What, what yeah. was the uh, what was the nucleus of it all? Well, I grew up in New Zealand um, and I, I came from a very basic background. Uh, grew up on a sheep and beef farm in a small remote farming community. Uh, you know, I went to school with nine other children. Uh, that's not the class, that's the whole school. And two of them were my sisters. Um, so it's a pretty small place. I mean, it's tiny, tiny little valley, right? So the nearest town was one hour drive away, out over a very windy metal gravel road, over two saddles to pass over. And uh, as I was growing up as a small boy, um, I always I had, I had a wonderful lifestyle because we grew up on a farm, right? So after school... Every day you're out and about in the outdoors, um, paddling around in little boats on ponds and riding horses and motorbikes and, and walking and running around all over the place. But I was, always, I was always interested in what was outside the valley. Uh, my mother bought me book after book after book about early explorers as well, which I just devoured. And um, it was pretty evident from an early age that I had, uh, had a, 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 an explorer's mindset. You know, I wasn't like a lot of the other kids who grew up in those communities who really are very happy to go back on the farm um, and stay there. For me, it was always what's out there in the world. I wanted to get out there and discover it. But something else got in the way for about 25 years. That's the national religion of New Zealand, which is, of course, a sport, which is rugby. So, um, um, you know, I dedicated and committed and focused my life on rugby for about 25 years played to the best standard that I could. Uh, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of competition in New Zealand. Um, and um, What standard did you get up to? So in New Zealand, I played representative rugby for like regional teams in Taranaki and down in south in Otago, where the university that I went to is. And then I came to Singapore when I was uh, 21 years old. I got a job in Singapore here. Uh, first job out of university. And then when I came over here, I started playing rugby here for the Singapore national team. And, uh, could you, just to size up, could you go straight into the team or did you have no, to live in Singapore? No, there, there was a period then, I think it was three to five years, where you had to live in a country. Yeah. Um, the IRB rulings, International Rugby Board's ruling that you had to uh, be based in that country, living in that country for a certain number of years. I can't remember exactly what it was yeah, yeah. now, it was three or five years or something. And then uh, that was great, you know, playing against all the best international teams in the world and all the big tournaments around. Uh, you were from Hong Kong, Scott, so you know the Hong Kong Sevens. 
and uh, you know playing you know the best teams in the world Fiji Samoa Australia you know Wales England and then uh, it all came crashing to an end when I broke my ankle and dis- dislocated my ankle and broke my leg uh, very badly in the Hong Kong Sevens. And that was uh, really the beginning of the end of my rugby career. That was in 2002. Uh, I did come back after a, a number of operations and try and play a bit more, but it was just my leg never healed properly. Uh, and I was a lot slower than I used to be. So um, I realized it was, it was time to change. And that's when I started looking back to my earlier days of being in the outdoors and exploring. And one thing I always liked, uh, even from an early age, was, uh, was using my own human power to get me from place to place, you know, walking or running. Never really been very interested in, in cars, you know, engines, things which are noisy and um, burn lots of fuel. Just preferred um, uh, using my own human power and I love maps, you know. I went to university for five years and studied surveying, cartography, mapping. That was my profession. Absolutely love maps, love looking at maps, planning out things and always been fascinated about making journeys and and um, I decided to co- combine these um, these elements of loving exploring, loving maps, and um, loving traveling by human power to start making long human-powered journeys around the world. So, yeah, started making quite a few of those all over the place. It's been great fun. Yeah. What was the, what was the first one you did then? So once you sort of realized that rugby wasn't going to be your your future yeah well it really started before rugby when i um i did have two years when i moved to the uk in 99 and 2000 and then i i walked across scotland um uh, in 18 days there from the west coast to the east coast of scotland along one of the long distance footpaths i think it was called the southern upland way this is quite a few years ago now i walked into everest base camp that year as well and i also did another west highland way walk up in scotland so i started to do some longer walks um, during that time uh, while I was still playing rugby but it wasn't until uh, my rugby days finished I started doing a lot more mountaineering mm. you know climbed all over the place uh, in all five continents now except Antarctica and um, it culminated uh, in, in summiting Mount Everest in 2012 when I came down from Everest I thought mm, I'm about the 2500th person to stand on the summit of Mount Everest that's not the most memorable number in the whole world you know a huge personal goal to get up there but um but you know there's nothing exploratory about climbing mount everest these days unless unless you are you are you know going by a new route which very few people ever do so i wanted to be number one again like i was in my rugby playing days but i didn't want it to be necessarily by running the fastest or being the best i wanted to be first to do something and that's when i started um putting together these concepts for long human-powered journeys. The first real major significant one was in New Zealand from the summit of Mount Brewerpehu, the tallest mountain in the North Island, to the summit of Mount Cook, the tallest mountain in the South Island. Um, And to do that, the journey between those two summits completely by human power, which when you look at the individual parts of those journeys, they've all been done before. But the, uh, the creative part, the innovative part about this, making it a first, was combining it all into one journey, mm. which, if you know anything about New Zealand, um, was practically impossible to get the weather right to do all those tricky bits, uh, you know, climbing each mountain, 
Um, the cycling bit is relatively straightforward. We kayak for five days down the Wanganui River, which is also not that weather dependent. Kayaking over the Cook Strait, extremely mm. weather dependent. You know, you may have to wait for weeks or even months, or some people wait for years to get the right conditions at the right time when you're there in position with the right fitness, with the right equipment. Everything's got to come together and the tides and everything. Um, so to, to, to pull that off, we managed to do it in 21 days and 19 hours. To pull it off in one, um, one continuous journey like that um, was a, was a, gave me a tremendous sense of confidence. And, but also just the fulfillment from having a unique, having a bold, unique goal, which I like to call it a bug. Coming out with a bold, unique goal like that, that really changed the whole direction of my life. Now everything that I do in the outdoors especially and even in my business life is defined by that's the starting point is defined by a bold unique goal it's not just a bold goal like climbing mount everest but it's it's the unique part which drives me i want to yeah. be the first to do something so okay this this is fascinating so where did the idea for the i suppose summit what was the name of the challenge that you did in new zealand i called it from peak to peak peak to peak uh, where did the, I mean, obviously the, the, like, the exploration sort of fire within you had been burning from a kid, but when it comes to actually coming up with that, that idea, yep. like what, what was the idea, what was the process that you, that yeah. you went through? I was, I was climbing Mount Cook at the time or trying to, I, I was on the, in a mountain hut uh, on the side of Mount Cook in New Zealand at the time. And I actually, I met a lady there who was said she was going to climb to the summit of Mount Cook. And then she was going to travel up and kayak over the Cook Strait. And I thought, what a neat idea. That's a great idea. I like, I like making long journeys as well. And um, Do you remember who the lady was? Did I you? can't remember her name. Yeah. Sarah or somebody, yeah. I think. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then it got me thinking. And you know, in the, in the world of creativity, hardly any ideas are brand new ideas, right? They're normally combinations of existing ideas. So... That kind of sparked the um, the idea of making a long journey, and I was thinking of places all over the world at the time. And when it came back to, uh, and I was looking at Google Earth. I love Google Earth, and I was looking at Google Earth, and that's when I thought, "Wow, what about doing it in New Zealand?" Hmm. And um, and so yeah, like how did and then what was the project? Did you do it all solo? Like what was the no, uh, so, so how how did you go about like actually once you come up with the idea, going through the the full planning stage and yeah good question so you know having the goal is one thing um having some values around the goal is 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 very important for me um because that defines the manner and how you're going to undertake the expedition so my values which uh which i really prefer um to stick by with my expeditions are to have as little support as practically possible uh, you notice I stay away from the word unsupported here because I see that thrown around regularly. And um, even people these days when I was climbing Mount Everest said they were there unsupported, which is complete rubbish if you're, if you're uh, in a trail which has been tramped out by someone else. So, so I stay away from the unsupported word, but I really do enjoy as little support as practically possible. Mm. And that means uh, no support vehicles, no support people, just um, doing it by myself with one other partner. Just on a side point to that, so you talk about the, there's the unsupported and un, unassisted, yep. and I don't know if you've seen just uh, Colin O'Brady just did the cross of the Antarctica, which yep. was the, the world's first or something. It was the first unsupported and unassisted. Yes. But he was, 
and I've done and look phenomenal feat of endurance you can't question that the guy is an absolute like phenomenal athlete but firstly it has been traversed before um, by a um, by a Danish guy, Uland, I think his name is, but yeah, and he actually came from the side of the ice shelf to, from one side to the other, rather than just the land mass of which was half the distance of what uh, Colin O'Brady and there was another Scottish guy did. But the the reason he was able to call it the first is because he didn't use any kite or kite assisted. Yep. Um, but he actually went across a groomed trail or a groomed uh, like across Antarctica, which yep. goes to the uh, to the pole, to the South Pole. Mm. I don't know, like, would you consider that to be unsupported by, or unassisted, sorry, by not, by going across a, uh, uh, a groomed, essentially, road, um, so you don't have the, yeah. the technical aspect well, of it? Well, the great, the great thing, I, I'm going to, I'm going to attack that answer in a slightly different angle, if that's okay. Sure. Um, it's a great question you brought up, and values, and, and, and the great thing about the English language is there's lots of words to describe what you're doing. So you don't really need to lie about what you're doing. What he did, as far as I believe, was um, a crossing of Antarctica from landmass to landmass, from the edge of the landmasses. But of course, when you look at Antarctica, it has a massive ice sheet which extends, you know, I don't know, some hundreds of kilometers further than that out. So, you know, he could have described his crossing using the English language in the exact way in which it was performed, which was a crossing of well, the first crossing of the Antarctic mm. continent from edge of the land to edge of the land by human power, solo, for example. Mm. When you start using these words unassisted and unsupported, um, when, when you're walking on a track, then that's definitely not uns, uns, you know, un, unassisted, is it? Mm. I mean, in, in anyone's... Uh, in mm. anyone's book so um but then again i um i cycled if you're on a bike and you're doing cycle touring and you travel from darwin like i did to coffs harbour 4500 kilometers uh, i said i i did that unsupported on my bicycle um, i stopped along the way and bought food etc but i was riding on roads so am I supported yeah. on that? So it's it's a bit of a fuzzy one, but yeah, you just need to be careful right. how you how you describe how you describe what you do. One thing which really irritates me um, when you're talking about because there's a few people who make human powered journeys around the world. There's people who say they made a journey from one point to another point when they skip certain portions of it, when they took ferry boats because it was too difficult. Generally, that happens quite a lot. Mm. Well, when you look into the into the into the finer details, they actually haven't made continuous journeys. So one of the values, uh, as for me, as well as using as little support as practically possible, is this this idea of every single meter. If I am coming up with an expedition, for example, the second expedition after the New Zealand one was in the UK was to go from the summit of Ben Nevis in Scotland to the summit of Mount Blanc in France, completely by human power. On that expedition. Uh, there was a watery bit called the English Channel yeah, to get it's across. A pretty busy shipping lane as well. So they say, but nothing at all like here in Singapore, yeah. right? Nothing at all, not even a patch on how busy it is in Singapore. So anyway, uh, I tried for months, almost six months, to get permission to to kayak across the English Channel, but the French authorities would not allow permission to kayak over their section. 
of the English Channel, of the shipping lane section. Mm. So eventually, uh, we started on the summer of Ben Nevis. We cycled all the way down to the south of England, got in kayaks, kayaked out to the middle of the channel, then had to get in a support boat, get taken across five miles of the French shipping lane, get back in the kayak, and then kayak into uh, Boulogne-sur-Mer in France. Mm. So for the channel crossing itself, we kayaked, I think, 75% of it, but 25%, five miles, was by support boat. Then we got back on the bicycles, cycled all the way to Mount Blanc and did a complete traverse of Mount Blanc from Chamonix all the way up and over the other side. So that was a 2,000-kilometer journey in total, but five miles of it was not by human power. Mm. So for me, that was not a successful expedition. And I'm very open and honest about that. And I think it's important because... There's, there is less and less challenges available in the world today as people do more things. Yeah. And it's just important as we do. I'd love someone else to go there and do that and do it completely and, and nail those five miles on one continuous journey. I think it's great. It'll be a great challenge for someone else to do. Yeah. I don't want to claim that when we didn't do it. Yeah. So it's just a value. Yeah. And I, I suppose, uh, and, and this is not to sort of, bag on Colin O'Brady or uh, I just think it can come across a little bit disingenuous and you've got to understand people's real reason for doing it in the, f- in the first place and yeah. I, I, I get the Im- impression that I mean everyone that does these sort of things has to have that fire in their belly from somewhere but um, it's, uh, it's the one of the issues I have is like unsupported whereas you're posting to social media every day like, the, like when the first one of those would have been done 96 with a, there was no real access to sort of like Mm. Uh, 4G or to or like to be able to access satellites yeah. as, as easily so just that that constant feedback with the outside world for me is like massive support having people like comment and like your posts during doing something that sort of event to me is a, is a sense of support I mean I, I I'm yeah. a, I love adventure racing that's my mm. my thing and you know you get a phone you get a mm. map you get a compass mm. and you you've, you've got a tracker on you but other than that mm. there's no and you can pick up stuff along the way, but you're not allowed any outside support at all, yeah. which is the way it should be. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the whole the whole idea about support, I guess, um, especially for these very long expeditions, uh, when you're by yourself out there for a long time, which is something that I, I do as well. Um, you know, if you get set, if you get sent weather from a meteorologist when yeah. I'm in my rowing boat, is that is that support? It is support, really. Yeah. So, so, so it comes down to you know uh, an argument over what is the definition of support. Yeah. Uh, for me, um, I definitely use meteorologists, but for me, the whole support factor is really around the more around the the engines and the motors. Is there a support boat beside you, for example? Like when we crossed the English Channel, there was a support boat with a 150 horsepower engine on it beside us the whole way across the channel. That took away 95% of the adventure yeah. of kayaking across the channel. When Did kayak- you have to have that to be able to get the to be <coughs> able to be able to do it? Yeah, uh, we were told we would have been arrested if we if we went out there and got into the French side of the channel without any support boat. Yeah, and so. Um, when we crossed the Cook Strait in New Zealand with did, no support Did boat. you think about chancing that? No, I didn't I didn't beforehand because I'd been told so many stories about how busy the channel is, how, how uh, you know, aggressive the French... I, I wrote in French a letter to the, um, the, admiral, uh, the, the um, admiral, admiral of Cherbourg, the, the office which controls the crossing, 
of the channel and asked for permission. And he also, to his credit, replied uh, a few weeks later and, and said no as well. If he gives permission to us, then he has to give permission to a lot of people. I understand there's a lot of people who want to want to do stuff, unorthodox crossings of the channel. But uh, yeah, now I would now I know I know what I what it's like in there i would um just change tack i'd just row from dover I'd get a rowing boat and i'd row from dover across to belgium most probably okay yeah yeah, yeah. um sorry i forgot where we were before i like it we're talking about values and colin yeah. i mean i i guess you know just getting back to him uh uh i would say that great 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 achievement um but yeah unfortunately if you say if you make claims about things which aren't really 100% watertight then they might get thrown back in your face and that's possibly what's what's happened to him he, he, may, he may not have uh, meant any malice by it but he just uh, hadn't probably thought through it clearly enough or or looked at it from the outside or, or had enough good friends who could sit there and say hey mate have a look at this are you really is that the right way to portray it or maybe it was the media who portrayed it and made a made yeah. a bigger noise about it than he did i, I think know. that's a big part of it as well and and this was because there was a guy that, a british guy that actually he's in his 60s and, I, and so i should have researched it beforehand but that, that attempted it two years ago and that um he was a guy from the army and he and passed away like 90 percent of the way into the the journey yeah. or not then he actually was in hospital afterwards so you know the challenge was out there it was it yeah. set so it wasn't he didn't come up with a concept of it but he was yeah. just fulfilling it I suppose. and this yeah. whole south pole thing um gets a bit ridiculous too when you when people say they ski to the south pole generally it's from where there's a lot of last degree expeditions these days as well so if you ski to it from the last de- for the last degree, the last sixty miles or whatever it is, then that's slightly different than s- skiing from the edge of the ice shelf, which is slightly different from skiing from the edge of the of the con- of the landmass. So yeah, uh, it's ripe for people who you know the the general public doesn't understand all the nitty gritty details. So people can be a little bit uh, clever with with the wording. People, people read headlines, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so back to your like coming up with the one for for New Zealand. Then did so? Did you do it all completely solo? In no, the, I, had a, I, had a, I had a, had another um, good friend, Alan Silver, with me. Yeah. And so uh, it's just the two of us. And uh, I mean, climbing Mount Cook is uh, is a uh, you could climb it solo if you wanted, but it's it's way outside my risk threshold. There's a massive uh, amount of um, crevasses and a huge glacier to cross. So. Uh, and and you know, yeah, Alan's a good mate. We've done a lot of stuff together. Trusted each other completely. So it was a good journey together. Yeah. And how long from like coming up with the idea to then actually planning out the times and stuff to do it? How long did just it take? a few months? Yeah. Can't remember exactly now, but yeah. maybe three or four months. Yeah. Maybe six at the most. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was pretty quick. It was plain sailing. Like Tiny budget, two thousand dollars each. Is that right? Um, so this is this is what I love about these like the self-imagined ones is that you yeah. can do it on a shoestring as well yeah right? yeah that one really went so almost perfectly you know uh we climbed the, uh, we got to the the base of the mountain on day zero and it was horrible it was, you know a, a storm basically and overnight it cleared up we managed to summit on the first day we had no time up our sleeve. We literally had to keep going the whole time. And summit the mountain on the first day, and then we five days pedaled down the river. That was all good. And then we cycled down to Wellington. Cook Strait was going to be the big bottleneck. Yeah. We got to Cook Strait on um, 
I think day eight or nine. And then um, the next day was just the most perfect conditions to kayak across across Cook Strait with the wind in the right direction, with the tides doing exactly what they needed to do. And we just, no waiting time whatsoever, just got in the boats, 70 kilometres in 10 hours. And you had your own individual kayaks? No, we paddled a a tandem. Tandem, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then um, cycled all the way down to Mount Cook and we had one rest day on Mount Cook with, with bad weather when we were halfway up it. When at that stage we're in a hut, so we're nice and safe. And then uh, it was only really the final day on the summit climb to Mount Cook where we had a bit of bother. Alan had uh, got giardia from the water in the Wanganui River. What's giardia? 15 days. Giardia is a parasite, yeah, that you get from drinking contaminated water, which gives you very bad diarrhea and, and weakens you severely. So we didn't really know he had that at the time. It keeps coming through in waves every two or three days. Or you get an attack of it, then it goes away for a day or two. You think you're getting better. But he really got hit hard on our summit attempt on uh, Mount Cook, which is which is a massive day. And it's a lot of exposed ground, and it's very cold. What's the elevation you do in a day on that? Um, for about 2,000, you go up to 3,750. So it's pretty in big day. In one push, yeah. Yep. And technical as well? <coughs> <laughs> you you cross the uh, the first part of the morning for six or seven kilometres. You got to trudge up the Linda Glacier, which is a just full of massive crevasses. Um, so you got to do that in the dark, and um, that's definitely a lot of objective danger on that. Then um, the last half of it is all technical climbing up the summit rocks, exposed uh, icy rocks. Yeah. W- was this before you did Everest, or was this? Um, Excuse me. Was this? Leading up the year after Everest. It was the year after, okay. Yeah. Um, and so had you done much um, b- prior to doing um, Everest? Had you done, it was Mount Cook the highest you'd been prior to that? Or no, what was the. I'd climbed uh, Aconcagua in South in, America. In per- is Argentina. It Argentina. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, this is sort of jumping back a little bit as well. But I mean, you talked about sort of getting to the top of Everest and being one of two and a half thousand people. and I've like one of my lifetime goals is to climb an 8,000 meter peak but I'm really put off by the Everest concept of being on top of the world of just doing it because it's Mm -hmm. the highest point in the world like I'm I'm all about just I want to get push myself to see whether I can handle it in in the death zone Um, how did like the thought of Everest come about because it's expensive as well right I mean you can say it cost you $2,000 to do the uh, Mm. do the peak to peak Um, yeah Everest would have been 20 times that yeah so i i started climbing after i stopped playing rugby and that's when i really committed myself to it for a number of years climbing all over the place a lot of time climbing in new zealand and then i took eight months off work and did a around the world climbing trip where i went uh, spent three months in patagonia and climbed back on kagua um uh, was that guy did or no no that was just i did it with an australian lady and we did a um, a technical route called the Polish Polish Glacier. Uh, we did a complete traverse of the mountain, came up one side, went up the Polish Glacier and up over the summit and back down the normal route. Uh, and uh, yeah, and climbed in USA and then uh, over to Europe. So that was that was uh, seven or eight months of fantastic, fantastic adventure. And then uh, just year after year, I mean, I never like really liked using guides at all. Uh, with my climbing, I'd much prefer to climb something lower 
um, and within my kind of abilities then shortcut the process and climb something higher and use guides and that's just something there's no there's nothing wrong with using guides at all um, it's you know they can add, add a lot to your uh, your climbing experience but it's just something that it didn't didn't um, I didn't I didn't really enjoy I got much more fulfillment out of uh, climbing something myself or you know with a mate yeah rather than uh, than paying lots of money to use guides Everest is a completely different ball game um, it's so expensive you're right but that's that's to go on a commercial expedition which has the benefits of economies of scale which goes back every year you know and has the same tents and the same cookers and the same everything if you want to organize your own expedition to Mount Everest it would be horrific in terms of cost so economically speaking a commercial expedition is a great way to go in terms of cost um, and uh, why I mean uh, Everest was just you know Sir Edmund Hillary is a Kiwi is always a uh, always a, a role model and a hero of mine and it's just got so just I just devoured I have a whole library of Everest literature and yeah. I find the history of the mountain completely fascinating and went to base camp in uh, 1999 and thought wow that's what a, what a place it's such a amazing spot you know being in the air amongst and the Kumbu, it's Kumbu Valley. Yeah, in the Kumbu. But I, when I climbed Everest, I actually went around the, the Tibetan side. Yeah, I you. went from the northern side, so I didn't get to see in the Kumbu. What What was the decision process around that? Uh, There's much fewer people at that time going from the northern side. Yeah. Uh, it, even though you get like a, a lot of the tour, Chinese tourists following the road up to the base camp up there. Um, yeah, getting altitude sickness and driving straight back down. Yeah, but uh, you don't really see them. They, they're yeah. it's all heavily patrolled by soldiers, and um, the tourists. There's not that many either when we were there, but um, they they go to a point, um, a little tent village, where they're not allowed any further. Yeah. And the actual mountaineering base camp is uh, about another kilometer up, further up, or two kilometers further up. So you don't really see them. Did you go with a specific? What company did you go with when you did it? Uh, well, I made two attempts. So the first one, I went with a um, with one organisation, and uh, I wasn't successful that year. I got pulmonary edema yeah. at about six thousand metres, and then uh, pulmonary edema is of the lungs, right? What that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two types: of altitude sickness, is cerebral edema in yeah. your brain, pulmonary edema in your lungs, um, and uh, yeah. So that that really weakened me enormously. And then I um, took three physically weeks. Physically or, or mainly physically. physically. Yeah. Yeah. Physically, I was uh, I was just yeah. I mean, there's the you get pulmonary edema and you're dying. And yeah. so I'm not talking about the dying part, the walk stumbling down for 18 hours. You know, getting down to a lower altitude so you don't die. That part you can hardly walk. And on the north side of Mount Everest, there's no helicopter rescue or anything like there's on the south side. Um, there's no helicopters allowed in Tibet on, on in Mount Everest. The Chinese don't allow it. So, uh, in terms of support, you are really um, it's a big factor to consider if you are going to climb Mount Everest. So, uh, but it was the next three weeks after that, just trying to get over the pulmonary edema. It, um, and you're in Tibet. That, that and you're in Tibet. Yeah, I mean, because you can't. Can you not fly? I suppose you can't. No, you can't fly anywhere. Everything's driving. You can't get low from on the on the north side of Mount Everest like you can on the south side. Yeah. So if you get sick on the south side, you can get down to a lower elevation pretty easily, which is where you want to be to recover. Whereas on the uh, north side, I drove down to about just over four thousand meters, four 
4,300 metres, I think, to a village, which is still not it's that not low high. to recover. And, uh, you know, the villages in Tibet are disgusting. The hygiene is just really, really bad. So, um, of course, when you go and stay in those places, you get you get you you come back with three times more sick than you were there when you went there. You know, with gastro issues and my tooth abscessed and all sorts of issues when I was there for three days. Yeah, actually, like one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about any DNFs did not finish and yep. like. Uh, um, and like being in the pain cave, like I, I hadn't heard this story from you about your, your first attempt on, on Everest, but this sounds like it's a perfect example of that. Like yeah. at, at what stage did you get pulmonary edema? Whereabouts were you on the mountain? And like, how yeah. did you get off? Why? And what, I wasn't very high, I was in an advanced base camp, which is about 6,100 meters. Is that the highest you'd been? So I know that there's an acclimatization period where you were yeah, sort this of- this was only um, like day, eight or nine or ten of the expedition so driven into base camp uh, waited there for three or four days and then made the first acclimatization cycle and i was what, just what height is base camp uh five three or something so you go I and mean, that's the thing like that's pretty high to go straight in from if you're flying into i don't know where you're going to tibet but then going straight up to five thousand three hundred meters without yeah. any sort of acclimatization until that point no like, we, we definitely drive in slowly it's a week week just to drive to base camp got you so we start in Kathmandu, drive from Kathmandu. But to be driving rather than doing any physical activity is a lot different I yeah suppose. that's right so i mean it's you stop at the villages along the way for one or two nights go for day walks mm. around the villages and so you're doing a bit of walking around by the time you get there but yeah it's absolutely when you get out of a four-wheel drive at over five thousand meters at base camp and then you're struggling for breath and it's cold it's windy on the north side yeah so you got this always got this wind and wind drives you crazy after a few weeks then you look up at the summit um it's like wow that's a long way away yeah um and so like advanced base camp into day eight um into day eight and uh yeah what like what happened like what how did it well i was i was uh i was very fit for that expedition but um when you get to altitude fitness doesn't mean that much anymore and i just felt so weak and i couldn't really eat or sleep for two or three days leading up to the time i got up to advanced base camp and uh, i just thought i put it down to the fact that i was just slowly acclimatizing and then uh, we got up to advanced base camp, stayed one night there. Uh, I felt terrible, but the next day we were going to go up to the North Coal. The whole team was moving up to the North Coal, which is 7,000 metres, to spend the night up there. Uh, and advanced base camp is at 6-3? So uh, I set off, loaded my pack up, set off in the morning and made it about 50 metres. And um, I just had, I was so weak that I knew I was no way I was going to make it to the North Coal. So I thought... I'll just come back to the camp. I'll spend another night there. Maybe I'll feel better in the morning. So they all left and went to the North Coal. I was in an advanced base camp. There was the cook. The advanced base camp cook was the only other guy in there and me. And uh, I just lay in my tent. I mean, during the day, it's so hot. It's just brutal. You know, there's no, there's no protection from the sun anywhere. So I can just remember lying there in my underpants in the tent, you know, just being sunburnt through the tent and it must have been 40 degrees or so, and just uh, having a splitting headache, feeling horrific, you know, like the worst hangover, times about 10, dehydrated, um, weak, 
everything nauseous. Well, you, I can imagine pulmonary edema, like you were coughing. Did, did you have that like, dry cough? That just well, wouldn't. yeah, you had a bit of dry cough. But uh, so, you know, the sun goes down. That's when finally it starts to get pleasant for about two minutes. And then suddenly it's, you know, minus 15 or minus 20. So you you jump into everything warm and then couldn't sleep all night, right? And about one or two o'clock in the morning, um, like, oh, I need to have a answer the call of nature. I need to have a crap, which is... Um, hugely um, uncomfortable in those conditions. So you, you kind of want like that during the day, right? Oh, the yeah. Of, uh, so you got to unzip the sleeping bag. you got to think about it for about an hour, right? I've got to unzip the sleeping bag and then put on my my inner lay and then put on my thermal jacket and then put on my thermal pants and put on your socks and put on your hat. And then, you know, oh, by that time, your your hands are too cold, so you've got to put your, warm them up, and then you put your gloves on, and then you've got to unzip the tent and put your feet into your boots. And all this, I was just like, something's not right. I'm so tired. I kept coughing and coughing, and then uh, got out of the tent and went down to the little barrel, which is a toilet in the snow, and and I was just having a lot of just, this was, a ma- this was like running a marathon kind of effort, right? And by the time I'd finished my business, I was just exhausted. I couldn't walk back up to the tent. It was only five meters away. So I started crawling up to the tent and I was coughing and coughing, spitting, spitting into the ice and the snow. And I looked down with my head torch when I got up to my tent and I saw it was all red. What I was spitting was all red. And that's when I knew straight away. It all, it like clicked what had been happening over the last day or two, how bad I was feeling and why I was coughing and... They call um, pulmonary edema is, is called the death rattles because you start breathing like and I'd be breathing like that for the last few hours and when I saw the blood in the snow I was like you know I said the F the F dropped the F bomb I was like fuck I've got pulmonary edema you know here at advanced base camp by myself with only the other guys that is the cook who doesn't speak any English whatsoever uh, no other teammates here um, yeah what am what, I going to do. What, like can you like radio for help but like what yeah. so wait, i had a radio with me so expedition leader turned it on once in the morning about seven o'clock i think i can't remember what it what time it was so um so i thought either i could get up in the dark now and start stumbling off now with no one knowing anything about it um down to advance uh, back down to base camp or i can wait uh, until the morning and then try and get him on the radio so in the end, I waited until about seven o'clock in the morning, managed to get hold of him on the radio, told him what's happened, and I knew I had to go down anyway. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, you got to get down straight away." Um, and of course, there's no other way there's to no get down. Go, there from was there. no Sherpas or anything there to be able to. They they were all up at the north yeah. North Coal. So uh, what happened eventually is he sent down a Sherpa with some oxygen, bottle of oxygen. So I started stumbling off by myself, but. It's an undulating walk down to advanced base camp, so you still have a few uphills as well, like little bits as you go over this glacial, you know, yeah. moraine. So I had to straight out of base camp on, even though I was heading down, I had like a 10-meter moraine wall to climb over, and it must have taken me about 20 minutes. I was just absolutely, I mean, it was petrifying because you can't breathe. You were, you were choking, choking to death on your on your own bodily fluids. You know, plasma and your, is filling up your lungs, and you're drowning. So I'm like... <laughs> But just r- panting like you run a, run a hundred meters race just by taking one step. Finally, the uh, Sherpa caught up with me with a bottle of oxygen, and um, I was too weak to carry the bottle of oxygen. 
So uh, I'd just walk and stumble along for about 100 metres and then fall down and collapse. Then he'd put the oxygen over me, the mask on my face. I'd, um, I'd suck that beautiful stuff in for, you know, five minutes, ten minutes. All I wanted to do was go, go to sleep. Then he'd keep me awake, shake me. Then we'd start off again for another 100 metres, stumble along. And, uh, I mean, I just wanted to sit down all the time and go to sleep. And I just would have done that if I'd been by myself and died. Uh, but he just kept shaking me awake and putting the oxygen on me. And I think uh, that night, normally takes four or five hours to walk down there if you're fit. I think we're 10 or 12 hours later in the dark, we, we uh, stumbled into base camp. And, uh, yeah, never been so exhausted in my life. I just, I was an out-of-body experience by that time. I was just, like, just floating <laughs> along. Just imagine if you had been further up the mountain. Mm. Like, there yeah. were, yeah... Yeah. yeah, it's pretty scary. It's it's a very, It was a very scary and very sobering experience, that's for sure. And look, we'll, we'll get on to home to home and, uh, in a moment, and there's mm. been, I'm sure there's some, been some scary moments in that as well, but um, would you put that down as like one of the, one of your toughest experiences? Um, the, the tough, the real tough part was uh, deciding to go back up again, was deciding not to quit and come home at that stage. Um, and after that, I went down to, to I got a four-wheel drive ride, and I went down to the village at 4,300 meters. As soon as I got down there, I got really bad food poisoning, and my um, tooth started to abscess. I was down there by myself. I had no uh, medication with me whatsoever, um, and uh, I spent three nights down there by myself. And then I had to go back up to base camp again, but. I had I I'd literally had got down to base camp, gotten a four-wheel drive. I didn't have my papers, my passport, anything with me whatsoever. And there's two roadblocks to get back up to base camp. It's about a four-hour drive, four-hour motorbike ride. All manned by Chinese soldiers with lots of guns. And when you go in there as an expedition, you have to you'll have to queue up in a line with your papers in the right order. Get out of the bus, stand there very quietly, go up to each one, get present present your paperwork and your passport. It's very you don't you don't play around with these guys, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I realised when I was down there, and, and I had my front tooth was in agony, and um, I had really bad food poisoning by this stage, and that I had to get back up to base camp, and uh, so I got a Tibetan on a motorbike. And the motorbikes don't go very well there because it's so high, the altitude, they don't get enough air. So he had like like a 100cc motorbike. I jumped on the back with him and we bumped off up this very bumpy gravel road, you know, for hour after hour. So sorry, let me just, you were advanced advanced base camp and you got down to a village, like how come you... Advanced base, it came down to base camp. Yeah. When I got to base camp, I stayed the night there. Yeah. The next morning I got up, I knew I needed to get down further to recover. But you left... So there's a four-wheel drive. Yeah. I just came driving past our camp. I saw, I put my hand out. I said, where are you going? And they said, we're going down. I said, can I have a ride? I just jumped in. I mean, literally, they were leaving straight away. It was like that. So there was no pack your shit up going. It's like this one chance to potentially save your life as well, right? You needed to get down. So I just jumped in that that four-wheel drive and went straight down. Uh, Yeah, to the the lowest village that we could get to. Yeah. 4,300 metres, something like that. Tashi Zom, it's called. And then uh, after three days there, I was really sick you know, with other stuff, gastro stuff, and uh, my tooth abscess, so I knew I needed to come back up. Hitched a ride on a on a Tibetan motorbike and bumped away hour after hour until we got to the first checkpoint. When I got there, I realised, oh, I don't have any papers or anything, and went up to, you know, the guard post, and they just started screaming at me. 
and and Chinese. Of course, yeah. I can't speak anything. And uh, that's when I went down and just sat on the road by the motorbike. And the motorbike rider, the Tibetan guy, you know, they look like pirates, right? They've got long braided hair and big knives. He just sat down cross-legged. He was fascinated by me. He was smoking. He sat down. We sat facing each other about half a meter apart. And he just was just watching me smoking a cigarette, looking at me with his head on different angles. Like, what's this crazy guy doing? And I just sat there. And that's when I was like, I, I literally had no idea what to do. Because I couldn't get any further up the mountain. I couldn't talk to them. I was really sick. My tooth was agony. And I was like, I really have got absolutely no idea what to do now. And there's no other sort of people that spoke English or no Chinese one. around? This no. is like literally in the middle of the mountain, a, a, a bumpy road in the middle of the mountains. So I must have waited there for about an hour. Just, I just basically gave up. I was like, I'm fucked. There's no... <laughs> <laughs> and by this stage, I've, I've actually had enough of this whole thing as well. <laughs> this is not much fun anymore. Then I saw some dust coming up the road and it was one of those Chinese tour buses turned up. And they come out making lots of noise and they go and queue up and like I just sat there, just ignored them because it's like, yeah, are they going to help me? And then um, as they finished, went back, their, their guide, who's a Chinese guy, said, looked down at me and he, he spoke to the Tibetan and said something. And he said to me, are you okay? In English. And I almost felt dropped dead. I was like, Christ, he can speak English. And I jumped at that opportunity and I said, no, I'm not. This is the issue. You know, I'm sick. I'm on an expedition, all my paperwork's at base camp, I need to get back to base camp, I came down here as an emergency, blah, 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 blah. And he went up and talked to the guards, and they had a, it always sounds like having a shouting match in Chinese, right? They yeah, yeah. Shouted yeah. each Even other for they've been really civil with each yeah. other, it's like, sounds like they're trying to kill each other. So they shouted each other for a few minutes, and then uh, I got through. So, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow, wow. Oh, that's fascinating, and um yeah, I'm, I love hearing those stories. And, and like before we get into home to home, like how, like how did you actually then think about going back to then climb it again the next year? What was the sort of process? You well, once through? I got up to base camp, did, sorry, I you, continued. You went back and yeah. climbed again on that expedition. Well, I, I tried to. I joined up. This is uh, yeah. I, I joined up with a team on the summit attempt. I got up to eight to high camp, eight thousand meters. Um, I was the slowest in the whole team. I was just exhausted. That was possibly the hardest thing I could remember doing physically anyway, just getting up there. Um, rested for a few hours, got up in the middle of the night, um, you know, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock midnight. Wind was blowing really strong. Um, got out of the tent, froze my fingers, putting my crampons on. Got about 50 metres above the high camp only. My toes were frozen, my fingers were frozen, and I was just so weak. I knew there was no way it was going to happen that day. So I turned around and uh, and that was as high as I got that year Yeah, and came back down. One one guy from our team summited that year. The other four all turned around as well, or three more, including me, turned around. A few hours later, everybody got frostbite to some difficulty. It wasn't yeah. a good summit day. It was too windy. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was the, the following year you went back? Yeah, so the following year I went back again and um, everything went much better. North side again? Northside again, yeah, yeah. knew what to do, knew, knew not what to do, uh, um, spent 10 days in Annapurna acclimatising by myself, just going for a walk around beforehand, strong, first one to the summit, first one back down, um, put all the uh, all the lessons into place and it, it just went beautifully. 
Yeah. What um, were the biggest things not not what not to do? What were the main things that you? Oh, there's a whole list of them. Yeah. Probably 24 or 25 of them. I wrote a blog about it at the time. Got you. Changed so many things. Stuff that what? you don't wouldn't even realize until you'd actually been there. How, how small and insignificant if I said them now, but how much of a big difference they are. We'll um, we'll put a link to your blog post in the, in the, okay. uh, um, yeah. in the show notes. But uh, yeah. I always think like, and this sounds like I've not done anything nearly as, uh, and we'll get onto home to home as as challenging as you've done. But um, and, and I, but I've never done, had a DNF yet. I've never not finished a race. I think that's yeah. probably you know. Someone always said to me, like, if you're like learning to snowboard or ski, if you're not falling over, you're not trying hard enough. And yeah, I, think interesting. I, I think my challenges haven't been big enough for me. But one thing I do like to do, even if I have done well, is like always write notes myself after on what yep. I would do differently and how I could do better next time and then take it into the next challenge. Yep. So. Love that. That's exactly what I do as well. That's a big part of my process is uh, coming back. And even if I uh, haven't made a decision about returning, to have a second attempt at something, I go through that process anyway because I find that process helps me come to the decision if I want to go back and try again or not. Yeah. So after my first attempt, I actually sat down. I didn't think I was going to go back because it takes so much effort, not just financially but emotionally, not just on you but your wife and family and everyone else and your your employer as well at the time. It's like there's no way I can go through that again next year. But I wrote down that list of things I would change it was like, you know, I'd, I'd go back earlier and do acclimatize uh, somewhere else for 10 days before it. I would um, change my crampon strapping system. I would practice more my down jacket for summit day when it's cold at 8,000 meters and it's completely dark in the tent, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. All these uh, things. Yeah, yeah. As I went through that process, I realized, crikey, I'm in a very good position to go back again in a second time. Now I know, I know exactly what to do and exactly what not to do. Mm. And that's when I got excited and thought, man, I've got to go back and I've got to go back and nail this. Yeah. yeah. And actually, that that segues quite nicely into the, to the home to home. So I've like given a bit of insight into the um, into the challenge. Um, but um, but obviously, you've taking on the the final part, which is crossing the ditch. And uh, there's been there's been three attempts to to that now. And the the latest one, I honestly was a thought that this was the time i thought you were, i was like pretty confident you were gonna gonna nail it this time you know the, it was, was no one doing it solo so yeah what happened like can you uh, yeah so the rowing from home to home just to give it a bit of context is uh was a an expedition to travel from singapore all the way to new zealand by human power um it's a pretty big project uh what's it's a massive project you know the budget now is is heading towards half a million dollar mark um it's it took three or four years to plan um and it was in three main stages Uh, the first stage was a 4200 kilometer row from singapore to all the way through the indonesian east timor archipelago to australia which had never been done before so there was a huge question mark about that initially if, if it was even possible because there's so many currents through the Indonesian islands, when you know this massive current system called the Indonesian through flow, which is the Pacific draining into the Indian Ocean, and it sets up these currents which are far too strong for even sailing boats to sail against, let alone a rowing boat. Um, so managed to pull that off uh, as the first stage, and then cycled across Australia to the east coast, and then it was just the um, the final stage to cross the Tasman, um, which was actually the shortest stage. It's about two thousand kilometres. But um, it's proved to be um, quite challenging. So I made one attempt from uh, the mid-Tasman route 
um, uh, for leaving from Coffs Harbour and spent 24 days out at sea and then uh, basically the, the rowing boat that I have which is a pretty standard ocean rowing boat used for crossing the, the Atlantic, mid-Atlantic route for example it weighs about the, the weight of a small car you know 700 kilograms all loaded up and uh, that weight means for one person rowing it if you're an Olympic rower or you're a, you know my kind of rower you still can't row against the wind yeah. if the wind or the currents are working against you it's just too heavy to row against and uh, the winds in the Tasman are really very difficult to predict um, they're all over the place and uh, I couldn't fight the winds on that first attempt so 24, 24 days at sea got out 500 kilometers offshore and ended up uh, we capsized once had a little bit of damage on the boat but everything was still under control but and when you say we that first time was just solo. me solo yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 when we me and the boat yeah. yeah, yeah. The donkey. The donkey, Simpsons, Simpsons donkey. donkey, yeah. We went for a roly-poly, and then we uh, got blown back into Australia, further away from New Zealand than where we started on that attempt. So then I thought, well, wind is pretty important to getting across the Tasman. <coughs> Excuse me, wind is pretty important to getting across the Tasman. You haven't got Tasman. pulmonary edema again, have you? <laughs> it, it is quite high up here, I have to admit, <laughs> in your beautiful office. Um, so... I decided to get back on the bike and, and ride all the way down to the south, to the bottom of Australia, to try and get close to 40 degree latitude, the roaring 40s, where there's strong, more strong westerly winds generally. So I rode for another 1,300 kilometres down to Eden in the south of Australia, and then departed from there again in my boat. And the winds were very strong down there. They're actually too strong now, and uh, the water is very cold. It was 12 degrees, and uh, we got flipped over three times in a storm in um, the space of four hours and some critical safety equipment on the boat broke unfortunately and that attempt ended in a helicopter rescue 200 kilometers offshore and then uh, I managed to get the boat back and thought well how can I what, what I'd learned from those first two attempts is that really the rowing boat Simpsons donkey is not designed for the Tasman route she's designed for a mid-Atlantic route uh, and I didn't really have the is right... Is that in terms of the weight of it? And I suppose the Atlantic, whilst I'm sure there is pretty big swells there, it, uh, you know, the wind goes in one direction, right? Main, main, like, generally, generally, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, the Mid-Atlantic route, which is a commonly road ocean rowing route, there's a race there every year. It is a trade winds route, yeah. generally has um, consistent winds, generally. Um, and um, generally has swells and waves coming from the same direction whereas the Tasman is like a pack of wild dogs it's all over the place the wind has these big big spinning masses of air called high pressure systems or low pressure systems completely different environment than that mid-Atlantic route and I realised that after my second attempt so for my third attempt I thought how can I control Simpson's donkey better? The rowing boat, because she capsizes too easily in heavy seas, especially when it's windy. So I decided to put a, another rower on with me. Got a partner um, called Luke who had rowed across the Atlantic before, so he had good experience. We set off again from Eden, and um, you know Luke on day number three said, this is just a completely different experience from the Atlantic. It's rougher now than it ever was on the Atlantic in this 54-day crossing. 
and it wasn't even that rough for the Tasman at that stage, you know. And later on in the afternoon, when he was on his shift rowing, we took quite a bad capsize, and uh, yeah, that's when we decided that this is not going to end well if we continue. And that's when I really realised that stop being stubborn. Only donkeys don't change their minds. It's time to uh, to get back into safety and uh, re-strategize. This is not the right boat for the job. So we managed to row back in from 200 kilometers offshore, got back in safely, and uh, yeah, now the boat's for sale, if you're interested, yeah. for a rowing boat. She's a very good boat, just not for the Tasman, not for the Tasman Sea. Yeah. So I'm now in a position where I'm um, designing a completely new boat for the Tasman. Um, it won't be um, It won't be propelled by oars, um, but I won't say anything more at the moment, um, but it will be human-powered, but it won't be propelled by oars. It will be specific. Is it a pedalo? <laughs> it could be. It could be, yeah. And um, so um, it will be, yeah, It will be. De- it's being designed specifically for the Tasman. It'll be a lot smaller than Simpson's Donkey. It'll be a one-man boat. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited. It's a, it's a pioneering, it's an innovative project. And um, it's going to uh, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, because the Tasman has been crossed by human power a few times. Right? Yep. Like there's obviously been there's been a few fatalities as well, hasn't there? But Only one been fatality ki- was it one guy that, yeah. that kayaked. Um, so so it's it was kayaked by cousin uh, Jonesy. Yeah, they, yep. dudes, yeah, a duo. And then it was this last year was kayaked by a solo kayaker Scott yep. Donaldson. And it's been rowed across um, all the way from land to land twice. Once from New Zealand to Australia, way up north, the northern route in warmer waters. And then that was by Colin Quincy back in 1970. And then his son did it from Australia to New Zealand uh, about 10 years ago. So they're the successful crossings. So they're the only successful crossings. There's been three human-powered successful crossing? Well, no, so the kayak, so there's two kayak crossings. Two ki- and then two rows. Two solo yep. rows, and there's also two boats of four. Ah, okay. So that's six boats in total. Yeah. Of about, I, I believe there's probably, there's probably around 15 attempts, six successful, 15 attempts that I know. I've written a bo- blog yeah. about the history of attempts on the Tasman crossing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's probably some undercover ones as well, which have, um, which I don't, which I'm not aware of. But I think there's about 15 attempts, one death. Um, six of them have been successful. I remember watching the the uh, documentary when the Aussie guys, Cousin Joan, is it Cousin Joan? See, that's the, yeah. that's the, um, yeah. and it showed like the news clip of the guy that was kayaking across and, the vessel that he was in was just didn't look adequate so it had like a it was just a normal kayak wasn't it but then had yeah. a, a like a water purifier on the back or yeah. but it didn't have the capsule like your rowing yeah. boat or that well, his, his was a modified two-person sea kayak yeah uh and you, you're right it was not a uh it was not something which was an ocean-going vessel designed as an ocean-going vessel so Andrew McCauley was his name, but I mean, a phenomenal athlete that wasn't he? he was like a, a pro oh, kayaker, wasn't he? he? Was yeah, I mean he'd done some some massive um, solo crossings, like uh, first non-stop crossing from 
Australia to Tasmania yeah. with our island hopping. And then he, cro- he kayaked across the, um, the Great Australian Bight, I think, up north. Australia to Tasmania is the ditch, isn't it? Sorry, that's no, the... No, no, no. No, the that's ditch is the New Zealand. That's the yeah. best straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, but let's... I mean, he, he did phenomenal. He got yeah. all, almost all the way to New Zealand as well. Really? Before yes. he um, before he got uh, caught out. But, you know, the thing about Andrew McCauley is, even though he almost got to New Zealand, he didn't make it. And a lot of people say, well, he kiked across there. But the thing about these journeys is that the dangerous part very often is as you're leaving shore or as you're getting into shore, you know, as you're coming into land. And he got caught out as well. And something I continually remind myself is that uh, it's not look at him and say, well, if he could do it in that kayak, surely I could do it. It's like, well, no, he didn't do it. And he died and he left behind a wife. And, and he left behind his son. Yeah. And um, as much as I respect him for making the effort, you've got to learn from these mistakes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that, that sort of leads me into the, the sort of balance of like life, work, family. And um, I, I took my wife to go and see you do one of your, and you're an amazing public speaker. I'd like recommend anyone if they get a chance to see you speak publicly. But uh, I, I took my wife along to the, um, uh, I think it was the yeah Tangling Club in Singapore and uh, and yeah brilliant presentation and um, but her thing was like oh my god like he's going to do this again across the Roaring Forties and he's got two kids at home and um, so like firstly like how do you like justify that but also get your wife on on board and then and then essentially like balance this burning desire inside with the realities mm. of day-to-day life both work and um and and personal and family and friends and yeah good question um not not sure if i'll better answer it succinctly uh but i'll, I'll make my best effort to do it but uh you know human powered exploration for me i believe is my purpose in life um if i didn't have to work another day um, that's what I'd do. I'd go on long, challenging journeys around the around the world, exploring the more remote areas of the world using my own human power. Uh, I have no interest in races. Um, I I really am driven now by finding unique things to do using my own human power. Being the first person to do something is is in itself a race, I suppose. Like if you're like. Uh coming up with a concept like you want to be the first person to do it uh, um, uh, well it's a different mindset to like when I played rugby and you want to be the best at something you spend you end up spending more and more and more of your energy chasing those last few percentage points of performance yeah um, and it's the same in business as well people if you want to go head to head with another business or, or in a particular industry you end up spending once you get to once you're pushing for that top spot which is a very small spot um, you end up spending so much of your effort just on chasing those last little few percentage points of performance. The explorer's mindset, which is what I talk about to, to individuals and organizations, is a completely different mindset when you're wanting to be in the number one spot by doing something first, mm-hmm. by being the first to do something. Now, if you look at me, which in the podcast you can't, I'm not uh, built like a rower right um but i'm still you know led the first expedition to row from singapore to australia the first would i ever be the fastest to row from singapore to australia in the future probably not because i'm not a rower so it's a very different mindset there is much more opportunity 
I believe, in the world to be the first to do something than there is by being the best. And that's what drives me. That's the whole, what I've, what I've dubbed the explorer's mindset. And that's what my whole business is focused around now, helping people move from um, trying to do what everyone else does slightly better to try, to try to do something unique, coming up with a bold, unique goal. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really, and we're, we're sort of moving into that business side. Um, I didn't answer your question. No, you did didn't I? actually. So I was going like, to give you a pass there, but no, no, no let's go back and Sorry. talk about that. But <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I, I think it's important because I think for anyone that like, even if you, you are training for something like an Ironman or something, you need to be able to get your significant others, both male and female, to their support to be able to do these things. Because the amount of training that goes into it is it, like, it does take time out of, uh, and I talk about it in life, it's like a, it's like a tripod, you know, we, you need to, you've got your, you've got your person, like your family and, and like relationships, you've got your challenge or whatever it is you're trying to do and you've got your work and you know, one can dip down, one can, but, but it all needs to stay in a certain amount of synchronicity to be able to stay upright. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I'm interested in how you think well, about it. Well, there, there's, there's a, um, there's a couple of things I'd say about, first of all, uh, my wife, Stephanie, we have, uh, we've been married for 10 years, I think, and we have two, two young children, um, and um, I'm very lucky that she supports what I do. Uh, but many people get the mistaken um, assumption that it's like she just sits at home quietly and goes yes to everything that I say, and off you go, and it's like, wow, you're so lucky to have a wife like that, and she's definitely not like that. She is a person who's quite resistant to change, and some of my ideas, I, I've learned over the years, you know, that I can't just come up with an idea and say, I'm, by the way, I'm going to go and do this in two years, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to go on this one-year expedition, and it's going to cost this much money, and there's all this risk and danger. It doesn't work like that. There is a process that we have to go through. And, um, you know, I, always, and I, said in my, I say in my talks this as well, she, better than anyone else, sees how much effort I put in to the preparation of my expeditions. Mm. She sees how much homework I do, how much training, how much preparation, et cetera, et cetera, to manage the risks and mm. ensure that the, you know, the most successful outcome is always that you come home safely, not that you get to the other side. Yeah. Um, so she sees that and, and she, there's an enormous amount of trust, trust there for a start. She always says to me, you know, I let you go away and do these things because I trust I trust you. I trust you'll make the right decisions at the right time to always come home. And uh, Everest was a great example of that when she saw what happened on Everest. I mean, lots of people get into trouble in those situations. When I turn back myself because they just keep going because they well, the summit's Summit only you, eight yeah. hours away now. I just keep going. So, so trust is very important. Um, the second thing is, I mean, authenticity as well. I would feel sorry for Stephanie if I changed into this person after she got to know me. But I was um, very much into expeditioning before I ever met her. On our very first date, I had to cut it short to run home to watch an Everest documentary on television. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> How did you get a second date? <laughs> I don't know. Not through my good looks, that's for sure. But, but she... she, she uh, she, I, she was aware of who I was before she met me, that this is what I love to do. This is one of my major passions in life. So that's two things, trust and um, the, the authenticity of who I am and that I'm lucky that she allows me to be me. And the third one, 
which is very important, is is a shared sense of purpose. The at, before uh, I left on this major expedition, two years before, so I had a corporate job at the time. I told her I, you know, eighteen years in the corporate world by now. I'm looking for a change. Um, I want to set off on this massive expedition. There is a lot of unknowns, but I was very sure. I was absolutely convinced that this expedition was going to change our life as a family for the better. And the only issue was I didn't know how that was how it was going to be for the better. And I talked to her about this, and I said, I just have this feeling that this expedition is going to change the life of our family for all of us in a positive way. Something's going to come out of it. And she agreed with me, you know, at the time, which was a massive leap of faith as well. But, I mean, you can't get to people... Ag- you can't get people to agree with you like that unless you're very authentic and passionate and driven and 100% believe in it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that something good, really good was going to come out of it. And uh, fast forward now to where we are now. I've created a whole business out of that expedition. You know, it's Powerful Humans is the name of my business. Um, through, you know, the name obviously coming from um, human-powered exploration. And... Um, I've created workshops, simulated expedition workshops from the expedition. The explorer's mindset was all born. You know, my signature keynote speech is all born through the expedition as well. Uh, I, I'm i at home, you know, 95% of the time now. Watch the girls go to school, watch them come home at night time. Um, you know, the traveling that I do for my business is just short trips. Whereas in my corporate job, I was away so much. Always out entertaining and, um, you know, and everything that goes along with entertaining, which is detrimental to your health and uh, and your family time, etc. So it has completely changed our life for the better. Yeah. So how do I get, how do, you know, how do I combine it all? I would I'd summarize it once again in, into trust, you know, authenticity, and uh, sharing that sense of purpose. Yeah. How's that? I, it's, that's awesome. I'm glad we. <laughs> I'm sweating I, now. I'm glad. We went, I'm glad we went back to that because I think there's a fourth as well. Um, you're an awesome salesman, <laughs> and I think you have to. Be. <laughs> hey, if you could sell an idea to your wife, or why are you going to be going and crossing the? Uh, Mate, like, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, but you know, use the word sales, which I think it's funny. We both we both come from a history of sales, but uh, it's communication and and yeah. persuasion. I mean, you you can't. You look at any of the explorers going back to early, early times, right? They had to go and sell these ideas to raise money, you know, to get their, build their ships. And Columbus had to go and convince kings and queens from different countries, you know, to get this massive amount of money to take on these projects, which, were, which had huge amounts of uncertainty. And, of course, you have to be persuasive. You can't just turn up at home and say, hey, hey, darling, I'm off next week. This is what's happening. That's just not fair, right? This is not what you do. I'm sure yeah. you're you're very good at, um, at at persuading and influencing as well. Um, I mean, as a as a career salesperson, I'd say yes. Like my wife would probably say no. Um, to, of course, I they don't it, want to admit they've been sold. I find it very hard to, to bring her along for the journey, but it's a work in progress. But uh, um, and and actually, that like leads really nicely, and we you you've touched on powerful humans. Um, um, but yeah, I, I've 
sort of heard some really great things about your uh, about your training um, uh, the courses that you do and uh, like really experiential um, way of, uh, of of learning and um, and yeah it, sound, it seems to be going going really well but yeah like what I'm actually really interested in is like the correlation between business and, and personal so all of the I find with people that have a sort of exploration mindset or an are interested in endurance sports or pushing themselves physically, yep. how that correlates to being successful professionally? Sure. Well, I'd say straight off the cuff, uh, to be successful in this kind of in the kind of field that I'm in, making these long, demanding expeditions, uh, there's an enormous amount of um, self-control needed. You've got to be very disciplined. You've got to be very very focused. Um, you've got to be very committed. Uh, and, of course, if you apply those traits to almost anything in life, then you'll probably be successful. So straight off the bat, I mean, that's, that's some of the, the crossovers in terms of the, of the attitudes and mindsets and skill sets that you need. But, you know, the bigger the expeditions become, like this one uh, for me, which I'm just, like I'm saying now, say with a new boat, million. it's half a million dollars. That's how much, how much is a new boat going to cost? No, I'm talking total expedition costs. Yeah, up to now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, hope it, I hope it won't cost that much. You've say, got me yeah. scared now. No, it won't cost that much. But uh, you know, it is a business. Mm. You know, to it's a it's a it's a project. Put yeah. it that way. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a business. And and if you looked at the profit and loss, it wouldn't wouldn't be very uh, wouldn't be very positive as in, as in a as you expect a business to run, but. In a bigger picture, I've created a business out of it as well. So the whole thing is a business, whether you like it or not. If you want to take on big expeditions, and I see quite often there's some negative, negative feedback in the adventure yeah. world. So this guy is looking for sponsorship, or you know they got sponsorship and it's this and it's that. Well, yeah. the realities of it is that if you want to take on these big goals, and you don't have half a million dollars sitting in your bank account, you need some help yeah. to get that. And everyone. There's so many adventurers want to know how to get sponsorship. And my easiest answer is it's a business. Sponsorship is not a donation. Most of them are looking for donations. Yeah. They say, oh, please, I want to really, really, I really want to go and do this. Could you please give me $50,000? It's like, that's not the right way to do it. It's, it's got to be an ROI. It's like the same Absolutely. in any sort of sales. It's like, what are they going to get in return? And mm. yeah, it's. So, so the business of it, the business aspect of it is huge and having, having, sales skills probably is the one one of the largest contributing factors for me getting to the start line of any of my big trips Everest and and the rowing from home to home expedition having really solid sales skills having the that that experience to go and sit in front of someone in an office like this and sell them an idea because an expedition I sold, I sold, you know, products and systems for 18 years in the corporate world, which was much, much easier than selling sponsorship for an expedition because the products that I sold had user lists, which were 150 organizations long. The equipment actually existed. I could actually take them to the factory and show them the equipment existed. I could show them what it could do for them. Selling a, an expedition, all it is, is it, is an idea in your mind Story. at the early stage. All it, the only thing that exists about it is some electrons firing in your brain. 
So you actually have to sit there and, and confidently and positively persuade somebody to buy in to this. Ultimately, all of this is an idea. So I feel very sorry for adventurers who go out there with no sales skills whatsoever and expect to go and be able to get sponsorship. Because it's, it, it is, effectively, it's a sales job. And if you want to get, if you want to, if you're an adventurer listening to this and you want to go out and get sponsorship, get advice from salespeople. Mm. Don't go to the other hairy-assed adventurer with a, with a long beard down the road who got, who got a sleeping bag and a head torch from somebody as his sponsorship. Mm. Go to a prof- the best salesperson that you know. can be in any industry whatsoever. Yeah. And get his advice. Get him to help you come up with a pitch. Get him to walk in the meeting with you if you have to. Yeah. But um, get their advice because they know what to do. They're doing it every single day. Yeah, and, and I mean, us both having like a career long careers in sales. Like, I think one of the most important things is like the true belief in what you're selling. And Absolutely. so I, I actually think that even if you don't have like the sales sort of like ability i think i mean there's a certain sales dna which can't be trained it comes naturally but if you've got the utmost belief in what you're what you're selling or or what you're doing when it comes to an expedition then then you can turn yourself into sales but if you have that passion enthusiasm it comes on you can bring people along in the journey and turn people around definitely i mean to to me that goes that that goes without saying Uh, i mean if you don't have belief in your expedition your bold unique goal if you don't believe in it how are you going to get anyone else to believe in it right including your wife right from the start if you're like well i've got this idea but i'm not so sure if it's a good one or not well it's like give up then don't do it you know i've never once lost belief in the rowing from home to home journey even tipped upside down you know 500 kilometers offshore i've never once lost the belief that i can do it and cross the tasman and that belief is critical anyone People in the team can smell it. If you and I'm are, sure there have been times you've had doubts as well. I suppose that goes without saying that oh, there will be times when you're. I've, I've, I've. I can honestly say I've never had a doubt at all that I have the capability to finish the expedition. Yeah. I've definitely uh, had low points where um, I remember after my second attempt last year when I came back. Uh, because when I have these attempts, I block two months off in my calendar. I had two attempts last year, so four months blocked off my calendar. I didn't have any work, any jobs. I came back after only one week, and then I had six weeks of no work. Obviously, you know, in my in my job, I'm always working at events which get booked two, three, six months in advance. You don't just come back and turn the key on and expect to start working the next day. And my money was getting very tight, and it was at that time I was like, oh, you know, I was questioning. The whole process yeah. and uh, more of a time frame of when it's going to happen rather than if I yeah suppose. and it was a bit stressful money the financial side can be pretty stressful when you've got a family and sure and kids as well but um the the belief part no never 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 once questioned that hey eh? yeah. mm. um also like, i've got a few sort of quick fire questions sure. i'd like like to run on both sort of like uh to to sc- close up and um First one, um, you mentioned that when you were in the valley, like you were a voracious reader. Hmm. Like top one, top three books that have truly inspired you? Oh, anything that Sir Edmund Hillary wrote. Um, he wrote a number of books, which I've read most of them. View from the Summit, I think. I found his books um, massively inspirational because he came from a you know pretty small, um, humble 
background, which I could relate to very much. Uh, so really, really enjoyed um, those books. I really enjoyed Ranulph Fiennes' um, book about his earlier expedition when he um, circumnavigated the globe. Um, I, I can't remember what year is, 1960 or 1970, but just the fact that uh, he needed 25 million pounds was his expedition budget uh, at that time. And, um, you know, the skill sets that he needed to get that expedition off the ground, let alone, uh, you know, be able to go out there and achieve what he did. So there's, um, there's two. Yeah, um, very good. And uh, favourite, I'm not sure if you're like a, you're obviously on a podcast now, but if you're a podcast listener, like some of your favourite podcasts? Yeah, so um, I listen to podcasts when I'm rowing the boat. So um, some of my favourite podcasts was that there's a technical one called How Things Work. Uh, yeah. It's from the US. Yeah. And um, they cover all sorts of things. How does LinkedIn work? How does Google Maps work? How do refrigerators work? All sorts of random stuff you don't really think about. Yeah, like that one. And this, but this one's going to be my new favorite. Oh, good man. Yeah, yeah. Endurance Asia. Endurance Asia. Um, yeah. And... Um, and the best kit that you've bought for under a hundred US sing dollars, um, over, like in fact, it doesn't have to be over the past year, but the best bit of kit before um, mountaineering, before sorry, before rowing, I hardly bought anything. I was a really cheapskate with kit, uh, but um, the rowing expedition, I have so buy so much stuff, it's not funny. What's the best bit of kit I bought for under a hundred dollars in the last year? Mm. I mean, it doesn't need to be the last year, the last year too. I would say, uh, I don't know if it's my best, but it's my kind of my favorite piece of kit, which I haven't got to use very much as a portable solar panel. Um, it's, it's about the size of an iPad and it folds up. That's when it's folded up, but you can fold it out into three. Mm. It's waterproof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it um, can use it to charge my power bank when I'm out at sea on the boat or charge my phone. What, what brand is it? What's I the can't one? remember the brand of it, um, but uh, it's pretty cool because yeah. charging stuff when you're away for months on end is a, is a bit of an issue. And is it quite light? or is Really it light. Yeah. You can fit it, fit it in the top of your, of your backpack, yeah. and when you're walking along during the day, you just have it um, folded out over the backpack so it'll be charging during the day. Charges the phone really quick. Yeah, yeah. When you get um, good sunlight, so I've charged my phone and uh, about the same, almost the same time as you plug it in. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I am like, I am going to be straight on. uh, um, I was going to say Amazon, but we don't deliver that here. I'll be uh, um, straight on Q10 Singapore to try and buy one of those after. Um, Last question. It's actually one that is probably not a quick fire, but it's one I always ask in like interviews, or uh, and it's your proudest uh, personal and professional moment of your life. The thing you are most proud of. Well, I think um, as a whole, it would be the fact that I moved to Singapore when I was 21 years old. I've been here for 20 years, and I set up a life, a wife, a family and a business off my own feet. Um, I'm a very independent person and um, I just, uh, I'm proud of the fact that uh, everything I've achieved here, I felt that I've built, I've built myself. You know, when I arrived in Singapore, straight out of university, I didn't know a single person here. 
not one. Um, I had no money whatsoever, you know, just out of university. I may have had $150 or something. And 20 years later, I have a family, a wife, um, a business which is going really well, and a whole trove of massive memories of expeditions all around the world and some, some great friends. So that would be it. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, and so that's and professionally proudest moment or proud, proudest thing. I mean, that sort of combines the two. But Professionally, it was something that happened quite recently. Um, uh, I did uh, delivered my... You know, I spent uh, six months creating my workshop for corporate teams, and uh, and then I'm probably you know using two hundred thousand dollars worth of expedition footage, and then fifty thousand dollars of developmental costs to de- to develop this workshop, and always had belief that it was going to be a great decision making expedition simulation workshop, but I hadn't really proved proved it at that point when you're developing it right the proof is in the pudding when you actually get out there and start delivering it the proof of the pudding is in the eating that's right exactly yeah thank you for uh, clarifying that and so yeah um, just before christmas i started to deliver a number of them and we delivered to spotify um the last event of last year and um they booked us two days later to for their next gig in australia so um they liked it so much so that was probably that was a massive signal it's much more than just that they rebooked us is that people liked it to the extent that two days later they said we want this and you know one of the comments from uh, from the rhr guy was uh, that this is the best off-site that, they've, that he's ever been to in 20 years so that was uh, that was something that made me um gave me a lot of confidence and you know to be honest i was pretty proud about it too that's brilliant, mate. Yeah. No, I'm really, really chuffed for you. Like it couldn't couldn't happen to a nice guy. And um, thank you. And so, um, yeah, closing remarks. So, um, just uh, any advice that you could give for anyone thinking of um, doing a challenge, whether it be like even if it's just from like running a marathon to um, I don't know, an Ironman or, or or something crazy like a circumnavigation of the Earth. Like what what sort of advice would you give to to someone that's thinking about it uh i guess the there's so much advice but uh the best bit i could say is um is the authenticity think of the real reason that you want to do it because the harder it gets uh the more important that reason is going to come back to if it's just i want to go and run a marathon to say that i want to tick the box then it's okay go and do it and if it gets a bit hard you might you still might want to you still might get through it you know but um, if you want to circumnavigate the Earth, if you want to um, go on one of these massive, massive expeditions, which are going to take years to organise, the purpose, the reason that you're doing it, uh, will be extremely important. And if it's not the right reason, if it's not a genuine reason, if you're only doing it just to tick a box, to tick a bucket list off, to do something like that, it may not be strong enough purpose for you. Um, so I get a number of emails, sometimes on a weekly basis, from people um, asking me about ideas that they've got and what they want to do. And uh, quite, you know, some of them I can tell are doing it for what I would call not necessarily the right reasons. Um, like people who say, I want to go and climb Mount Everest, I say, well, what have you climbed before? 
oh, nothing, I'm not a climber. I say, well, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? Well, what about climbing some other mountains, you know, some smaller mountains? Um, and no, they just want to climb Mount Everest. It's like, well, okay. So I would say just, just be really brutally honest with yourself. If it's a really big goal, be really brutally honest with yourself. You know, it's easy to see people reaching shore in an ocean rowing boat and say, I'd love to do it for that reason. When they row in and have a crowd of people cheering with them. But that's, that's not the reality of what it's like. If that's all you want, then uh, that probably won't be enough to get you there. I, I think that's like phenomenal advice. Like having, a, having like a big overarching like why you're doing it in the first place mm. allows you to, when it does get tough, to be able to see the clear vision on why you're doing it and be able to get through it. And that's Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so, if, I mean, you mentioned you get lots of emails. If anyone wants to follow you, find out about you, what are, how do they how do they get in touch? Where do they? What are the socials? What are um yeah? Um, I uh, have gone a bit quiet on the social media side recently, um, and once again, getting back to the purpose of all things, that's not the purpose that I'm doing it. So, but uh, I still post every now and again. Um, the expedition Facebook page is just my business page as well. Powerful humans on Facebook. I have an expedition blog called axoneverest.com and um, yeah, my, my speaking workshop business is powerful-humans.com. Yeah, perfect. We'll, um, we'll share those in the show notes as well. Um, Ax, thank you very much. Like It's been an absolute pleasure. We, I could sit here and chat with you hours, mate. There's so much mate, more that I could Time's gone ta- by pretty quick, hasn't it? It sure has, yeah. Well, I'd like and to look, ask you a few questions too. Well, maybe like, uh, yeah, maybe for <laughs> next time. Like, uh, But sure, we'll definitely have you back on again. There's more, and like home to home, the, as you say, that that is, uh, is not going to be done until it's done. And, uh, and I've got the utmost faith that you're going to complete that mission so uh um yeah best of luck for getting the new boat fixed up and uh and look forward to hearing about next steps thanks for those nice words and uh keep up these great podcasts i'm really looking forward to hearing uh, some other people sharing as well yeah cool thanks very much the endurance asia podcast and always tell the truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad hey mr rick stockfish um, what did you Scott? think of our, our friend, uh, Mr. Grant Rawlinson? Then? It's interesting, isn't it? Just uh, makes me think I need to go and get out there and see this keynote of his. Yeah. And uh, find out what, what that presentation is all about. Um, yeah, he, uh, he just comes across as a really, really driven, interesting guy. Um, I think this whole thing about um, setting yourself a unique, a unique goal. A bold, unique goal. Yeah, um, and also this this idea that you know don't worry about being the best at doing something if there's an opportunity to be the first to do it, um, just allows you to carve out a real niche for yourself, and you can see that through line through his through his adventures and his expeditions over the last ten, fifteen, twenty years really. Yeah, well, there's a real creativity to how he thinks about it, and even going back to my first conversation with him when I was thinking about doing the. The charity event in the kayaking around Singapore, and he was like, "No, you can't do it." But but just on a face on a FaceTime call with him, just seeing how his mind works when he's thinking about these kind of challenges. Although that is a like in terms of scale is just tiny, but yeah. just thinking about the creativity around human powered and the um, he's got a real um, 
sort of integrity around it as well. You, you heard him talk about um, the Antarctic crossings recently, and he's a he can tell that he that he really wants to make sure that all of his challenges is purely human powered based, and yeah. that he doesn't deviate from that. Well, and his frustration with his with his own crossing of the English Channel, yeah, on that on that Ben Nevis to Mont Blanc expedition. No, that's right. I mean, I think you know he, he talks about how that first. I think it's his first attempt to cross the Tasman didn't work out um and so his response to that rather than just kind of tri keep trying to do the same thing over and over again was to then find another point to sail from which meant cycling down the east coast of Australia which in itself is a pretty big undertaking yeah um but that was it was important that everything linked up yeah he's it is a we go in a little bit around how many people have crossed the Tasman yeah. but by human power and on single or tandem boats, it's very few. And but he he really he's unwavering in terms mm -hmm. of his uh, uh, his belief in being able to complete it, which is uh, which is pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean the fact you know he's he, he sort of overlooks the fact that what he's already achieved in that expedition is is pretty unique, well, completely yeah. unique. Yeah, no one's ever you know, done. A, I mean, we we say no one's gone from Singapore to to Australia, but I'm sure. Yeah, going back in sort of, uh, yeah, Homo sapiens years, someone yeah. must have crossed from Indonesia to Australia at some point, otherwise it wouldn't be populated. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, certainly in, um, in a single human-powered rowing boat, it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, I think, as you say, it's, it's interesting in terms of just showing you that with a little bit of creative thinking, you can come up with things that haven't been done before, linking up places that perhaps you haven't thought to link up. Um, you know, I think the way he took that peak to peak, the peak to peak challenge he'd done in New Zealand. I think he's then gone on and done something similar in Asia with it. But even what he did with um, the Ben Nevis to Mont Blanc thing, there's, yeah. you know, there's a, perhaps no one would have thought of doing it before. It certainly hadn't been done before. And that in itself just makes it a fascinating um, undertaking. Yeah. I really loved the way he talked about his family piece because we, um, Indra, uh, my wife, came along to one of his one of his talks, and he's a brilliant public speaker. But she was just like, "How does he justify this being away from his family yeah. for so long?" And she just found it very hard to understand. And I think he explains it really well in in the interview. Is that now, whenever he's at home, he's on the court. Yeah. You know, at home ninety five percent of the time. He's been able to make his passion his career and has therefore allowed that to fit around his family when it when he when he's here but he yeah um, he says he's at home 95 percent of the time and then you know it also allows him to just be authentically himself yeah you know in terms of sort of self-actualizing he's 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 right there isn't he he's, he's doing what he wants to do um and as a role model to his kids and other people around him how great is that yeah, and he's he is truly inspiring. Just listening to him, you're like, right, okay, I need to up the game in terms of what I do next. Uh, um, but it is also inspiring. Like a few of the people we speak to, like we've got Jerry Chua coming up, and uh, um, and Seb at uh, Thailand um, Thailand Mountain um, Trail. These people have turned their passion into their career. Yeah, and. It, that in itself is quite inspiring. Someone, I, mean, I think about the Venn diagram of uh, what you're good at, what you love, and what makes you money, yeah. and they manage to sort of find the uh, find the centre of that. But they're also, I mean, all of these people are pursuing paths that aren't 
traditional career paths. There's no, there's no set route. There's no guarantee that it's going to work out for them. Um, a bit like, uh, a bit like Axe says, you know, he, he just had this sense that it would work out and it would be better for him and for his family. And, and sure enough, it did. It could have gone the other way, I suppose. Um, but somehow you get that feeling that, you know, if you're, if you're pursuing something you really care about, um, and this comes up in the, in the conversation we have with Seb coming up in a few weeks, you know, he, he couldn't really explain why he did the thing that he did, but having done it, it then shapes the rest of your life. Um, so I, th I think that's the thing, I mean, it's the, 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 the magic of hindsight, it all looks like this kind of grand master plan, but at the time it was just kind of finger in the air, hope for the best. Um, I suppose going on these, I mean, some of the, he's obviously, he's been, he's done Everest twice and lots of mountaineering around the world and uh, taking on this, this home to home challenge, but there's a huge leap of faith to do that. Yeah. And then starting your own business is a similar sort of leap of faith, isn't it? You have to have this utmost belief that you're going to succeed. And by all accounts, like I've seen, I've, I've spoken to people that have been on his training courses mm -hmm. and they're really amazing experiential um, sales training and decision-making training. I actually, I want to get him in on, um, to come yeah. and do training with yeah. my team. I, I think um, that, because uh, there's so many correlations between, I've just finished reading Endurance, the, um, the Shackleton expedition, and uh, you read about ideas around leadership and everything. There's so many things that you can take out of the sporting world or the... Um, or the big expedition drones and and bring into to the business world that uh, that it makes sense that he's able yeah. to turn it into a um, yeah. A although I've, actually, what I thought was really interesting was it, it with 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 Axe, he was sort of talking about going the other way as well, which isn't something you hear about that much. But the fact that he's kind of mm. quite um, quite keen to point out that you have to be able to sell yeah. to do this sort of thing because if you're going to get money in for these expeditions, you need to be able to sell it as something that. And you mentioned getting ROI on it. Um, it's almost, you know, the, the, the narrative is always about, as you say, things going the other way. What, what you can take from your passion projects and bring into your business life. But there's an element of it that goes the other way as well. Um, yeah. And he's a great example of that. Yeah, that's actually when I caught up with him originally, he said that the thing that people contact him about most is how they get funding for these kind of, uh, these kind of challenges. And a lot of the time he says his advice is, why do you need funding? Right. Like try and do it on a shoestring and because otherwise it takes away from the authenticity and the, and the essence of the event in yeah. the first place. And, and uh, we, we talked before around people that are getting sponsored for charity events. And unless it, yeah, it's, it has to be something that captures the imagination for you really wanting to, um, to donate. Obviously and, and the charity is important. Something out of your comfort zone, whatever that zone is. And however that might be perceived by the people, I think as long as you're pushing yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, someone just uh, signing up for a 5K fun run and wanting charity donations for it. It's, uh, unless it's, unless yeah. they've never run before. Yeah, fair know, point, yeah. It. In fact, actually, it, if Indra you know. was to do it, I was talking to her last night, hey, why don't you sign up for a 5K? And, uh, and yeah, if she's to do it, I would definitely uh, right. <laughs> empty my wallet right. for that. But uh, yeah, it's a fair point. It has to be, as long as it's pushing that individual outside their comfort zone. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, yeah, that's one of my biggest takeaways from it is that is the bold, unique goal. Yeah. Like in terms of goal setting, because he coaches uh, professionals as well, and thinking about a um, 
an overarching goal that you're looking to achieve and and the uniqueness of it something that is creative that's um that uh that's original yeah i think it will um yeah both rally people around so i'm thinking even in the business world if you want to say like right as a team we're going to achieve this if it's something that is slightly different than people and, and captures people's yeah. imagination yeah it will inspire them and motivate them towards but just, it. Just going back around to that charity piece, I'm curious, like you, you did the Hong Kong Four Trails earlier this year. You obviously raised a lot of money. You've raised a lot of money for these charities before. Was that something that weighed on your mind at all as you were going around, particularly as you kind of got close to the point where you realised you weren't going to be able to carry on? Was it something you thought about? Or do, you think it, do you think you went further than you might have done because of the money behind it? Or was it just not a factor because it was a purely physical decision in the end of the day? I think when I when I got to the point that I had to pull out, it was it certainly was there, there was a few factors that drive you forward. Uh, I had a a vision of the finish line of uh, of planting Luke yeah. on, on on the post box. The amount of money raised and all of the people that have donated and supported were, were a factor. But then once you realise you can't carry yeah, on, yeah. it's you you're. I was very pragmatic about it. Of just like this is the reality of yeah. it. Whilst I'm disappointed of letting people down, there's uh, there's uh, but I mean there's I, no and I don't think yeah. pe people aren't really putting the money in for you to finish they're putting it in for you to to give it a shot yeah. at, at the end of the day and I think that's the big thing is through the through the training right because as soon as people start to donate it's, this is real okay right. I've you know I've got to make to sure start. that I put myself in the best possible position to yeah. be able to achieve it right. and to be able to do them do them prouder yeah. and yeah, say yeah. Um, that makes sense yeah yeah. So, um, yeah. What's uh, what's coming up in the uh, in the calendar at, um, at the moment? I well, we need to we need to get the uh, get the Seb podcast up soon. Um, that's Seb Bertrand, who's a a guy um, who's done some amazing uh, bushwhacking and trail finding in the north of Thailand. Um, you and I were up there a couple of months back. Spent a few days with him. Um, I wrote a story about it for uh, for one of the magazines here in Singapore. That's out this month. Um, so that's a, you know, very different interview from the ones we've done before. Um, different kind of, different kind of expedition. Um, yeah, yeah they just one way you describe it is enigmatic. I think, which is a really interesting word because there is a certain amount of uh, of mystery around around the around the guy. I think, um, yeah, it's very, very similar to Axes in terms of, you know, just had from somewhere, I just had this belief that there was something to be done here right. in Northern Thailand. There was a yeah. there was a business out of it but that wasn't the core focus it was he thought he was going to be able to leave his mark and um and he certainly has done yeah he's yeah i mean you'll hear more you'll hear more when we put it up but there's a there's an interesting thing there about ego versus you know kind of proving something to yourself and and all the rest of it and he's definitely found his humility through yeah. uh through the through the i suppose root finding of that yeah um we've also we've got jerry chua she's going to be coming up um very soon um and actually this weekend we've got um maggie maria um maggie who's a, a spartan athlete is a i, I originally started uh, doing outward bound adventure race with her in hong kong a few years back and now she's turned into a legit professional sponsored athlete by Spartan so she's down in Singapore this weekend she's going to be doing the uh, the 5k sprint um, elite with Spartan so I'm uh, I'm going to go down and check her out um, hopefully getting on the podium there and we'll be having a chat afterwards 
Um, so yeah, we've got some um, we've got some uh, good podcasts coming up, and then in the race calendar, we've uh, I think it's UTMF this weekend. Yeah, Ultra Trail Mount Fuji, um, which is a which is a biggie, yeah. big one in the in the Asian calendar. There's quite a few people going up from Singapore. They had the Big Balls uh, Backyard Challenge last weekend in Hong Kong. That's right. It's, yeah. Uh, if you've uh, if you've ever run on Bowen Road in Hong Kong and you fancy doing it. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times over. That's one for you. They've already put it in the calendar. So Stephen Carr has already put it in the calendar for 2020. Yeah. I was actually quite surprised. I thought um, Tom Robertshaw. I, I. It was either him or um, or Mr. Haywood, who's a previous uh, survivor of the Hong Kong. Uh, Will Haywood, a previous survivor of the Hong Kong Four yeah. Trails. Uh, I had them two as uh, as potential, but. Yeah, I was I was convinced Tom and Rob, Tom Robertshaw would uh, would bring that one home yeah. as a as a previous finisher of the Hong Kong Four Trails and an absolute beast at the long distance. Um, but yeah, that's a th- that doesn't appeal to me that race. I've got to yeah. be honest. Yeah, well, it's also it's just a, it's a funny one. I got my mate Elliot who uh, I think he put in 120k plus, yeah, um, and he's a guy that I met um, lives in Hong Kong. He's a guy I met on my first 50k. Both of us doing a 50k for the first time. And he's just pushed on and on and on and uh, is now um, nailing some of those longer distances. It's really, really inspiring to see that. That was the longest um, distance he had ever done as yeah, well, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, there's uh, plenty of kind of new races coming up on the calendar that we uh, Yeah, well, we just into. saw that there's uh, the Adventure Race World Series, which is the, um, uh, which has XPD and, uh, they, and they've got an... Um, uh, a trial race um, in uh, in Malaysia coming up, so it's not the full long 520, 550k, but it's a, a 340 k- uh, kilometer um, adventure race um, happening there, which is in November, I want to say. Um, no, sorry, end of October, um, 20, 19th to the 24th of October. So yeah. I'm quite keen to be able to pull a team together for that and. Um, uh, uh, and uh and check out that demonstration race because what well, they, they did a demonstration race in japan just last year as well and the idea is they do a demonstration mm-hmm. race and then they get part of the official adventure race world series so um yeah that's um that's a good one to to look out for good, good stuff. stuff yeah nice one rick Let's check in again soon yeah looking forward to the um to the next podcast thanks everyone